All right. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to The Skeptical Naturopath with Paul Rattay and Christina DeRocher. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Christina. Oh, happy holidays. Yes. We got snow on the ground. We have snow. Wonderful. Yes. Okay. So in an antithesis to the holidays and the snow and the anticipation of family time, we're going to talk about stagnation. Stagnation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what is stagnation? What the heck are we talking about? So I, th- this I is think we Chinese, all know. <laughs> yeah, we all kind of know. But let's just maybe start focusing on what is actually moving in the body. Okay. Yeah, like like that's the 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 circula- circulatory systems. So yes. we all know blood flow, mm-hmm. right? So we have the blood flow. That's how we're carrying oxygen to our cells, carrying nutrients to our cells, and then removing carbon dioxide and waste products to be pitched, right? And then that gets involved with the oxygen flow. So we also have the oxygen flow in the lungs, right? We bring in oxygen, we we exhale carbon dioxide, right? Mm -hmm. And they mix in the heart, and you know. So there's those kind of two circulatory systems. I mean, this is pretty classic physiology and how we study that. And the heart's kind of in the middle, but there's other things too. So the digestion. Right, so the digestive tract, think about that. That's a circulatory system, sort of, right? Or there's movement. Let, let's there's say there's a definitely movement, movement but mm-hmm. it's a one-way street, or it should be a one-way street, right? So some people end up with SIBO, you know, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, where the bacteria is moving in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Instead of staying in the colon, colon, it spreads up or moves up into the small intestine where it doesn't belong. But anyway, so that's a movement thing as well, right? Mm-hmm. And if we want to get technical with the digestive tract, the movement there is, we call it the migratory motor complex, the MMC, right? So there's a, there's a, well, we call it the law of the gut. There's always movement from the up down, if that makes sense, or uh, outward, right? Okay. And the way that's done is peristalsis, right? So peristalsis means that whole digestive tract has a whole muscle layer on it, right? Mm-hmm. There's a muscle layer that contracts, and it contracts, and it gets this these wave-like motions that move the food or move whatever's in the GI tract out. And it's kind of segmented, so it kind of does, well, people can't right, see Right, you can't picture. see, but you're sort of, but you're sort of pumping your hand I'm open pumping and closed. My hand, yeah, pumping, you know, so there's that And there's wave villi, like There's right? villi there, your digestive tract, if we took it out, it's about 30 feet. I think it's 30 feet. But if we spread it out, surface area covers a tennis court. So the, the villi are just like so we can invaginate, so we can get a lot of surface area there, especially in the small intestine. And we need that because that's where we're absorbing nutrients. So we want to have as much contact with that gastrointestinal tract as we can. Mm-hmm. So it's not like smooth. It's all finger-like villi, right? So I always tell people we like shag carpeting. We mm-hmm. don't like Berber in the GI tract. <laughs> right. Berber's a bad thing, at least in the <laughs> small intestine. Okay. We like those finger-like villi. Anyway, so there's movement there. And that movement is actually we eat, and that triggers movement. But that moves even if we don't eat. Mm-hmm. So that um, that migratory motor complex that circulates or moves through like like it's like twelve to sixteen waves, if you want to think about it that way, each day, right? So there's that's happening even if we don't eat. So once every two hours. Yeah, sort sort of right. And and if you eat food, there's going to be stronger peristalsis, right? So there'll be more of that that's happening. But still, even without food in the digestive tract, there's a movement piece. Okay. Right. And think about that. I mean, how many people are constipated in the United States? I mean, constipation is a Western disease. So all those, uh, you know, doctors that are in Africa or they're, you know, colonial doctors and they work in third world countries, they find that they that what they labeled was Western diseases. So diseases that they would see amongst the people living in, the, you know, where they're from versus what they see amongst the natives, mm-hmm. right? They don't see constipation. They don't see dental caries or cavities. They don't see gallbladder disease. They don't see cardiovascular disease, right? So there's things that we, that don't occur in these third world countries, developing countries. Yeah. So then we're like, oh, well, why is that? So that was the whole um, fiber hypothesis. Right. So Burkitt was the MD that kind of developed a fiber hypothesis back in the 70s, I think. Anyways, he's a doctor in in Africa, and he's like, the issue is is they eat fiber, Uh right? So there's a tremendous amount of fiber in their diet. That's why they don't have constipation. So fiber is something that's really important. 
And understand that's going on the same time as the lipid hypothesis, mm-hmm. right? So that means lipid hypothesis, fats are bad. And now fats are bad and fiber is good, right? They fit together. Right. But there were also people at that time, I'm kind of digressing here. <laughs> just How unusual. Li- just a little bit. <laughs> but it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then, so then um, there were other researchers or doctors that came up with the carbohydrate hypothesis, or let's call it the sugar hypothesis. In fact, a pretty... I don't know if it's a popular book called The Saccharine Diseases. It was written mm. by, a, actually, was he even a, I think he was a medical doctor. He worked for the British Navy, right? So he had an idea that, oh, it's the sugar consumption, saccharine, not meaning saccharin, the artificial sweetener, but just saccharine meaning sugar. Yeah, sweet. So his hypothesis wasn't necessarily the lack of fiber, it was the addition of sugar. And in that would explain the Western certainly diet. what we think of as cavities right? right for sure so and probably it's some of each mm-hmm, yes mm-hmm. but understand that the 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 sugar hypothesis doesn't hold sway because we were like well sugar's bad and fat is bad then what do we eat well i mean again so the the idea being they they're kind of conflicting mm-hmm. yes whereas fiber lack of fiber and too much fat work together really easily right. so i mean those are just kind of currents of thoughts and People, you know, writing about this and coming up with that, right? And, you know, Ansel Keys was the kind of the anti-fat crusader. And then uh, John Yudkin from England was the anti-sugar um, guy, right? So, and they kind of fought it out. You can actually read this in the literature. Like they had, they had kind of sparring matches uh-huh. going in some of the journals. And uh, uh, interesting because they're coming from completely different perspectives, right? One saying it's sugar that's the problem, the other saying it's fat that's the problem. Mm. And now 40, 50 years later, where are we at? I mean, I mean is sugar the problem? I don't think sugar is the problem, but it is a problem and it's a big problem. Doesn't sugar turn into fat? Sugar can turn into fat. You can't turn fat into sugar though. Interesting. Right. But keep in mind that we say sugar, we need to be a little bit clearer, right? So my biochemist, my biochemist friends don't like it when you say sugar because mm-hmm. we're not being too clear. Much of a blanket statement. Glucose, sucrose, sucrose, fructose. Like, let's be clear. What do you mean? Do we mean sucrose? So when we say sugar, generally we mean the plain white stuff, which is going to be sucrose, which is half fructose and half glucose, versus blood sugar, blood glucose, which is all glucose. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I digress. So this is just the idea that the movement through the digestive tract right? That is so, so very important. And again, the idea being, well, we need more fiber. Mm -hmm. So fiber would be something to help with that stagnation, right? So in other words, getting to the stagnation, we have a stagnant, perhaps circulatory system, a stagnant oxygen flow. But I would say those don't happen too much, right? Because if your blood stops flowing, we got a big problem. Big problems, immediate problems. Immediate problems. Whereas the digestive tract doesn't move. And do we force it to move? And how much fiber do we need? I mean, I'm a fiber proponent, right? I think we need fiber. Yeah. Yes, but I've seen hundreds of patients that consume tremendous amounts of fiber, and they're still constipated. And, And understand, how do we define constipation? Like, what's your definition of constipation? I mean, I have a bowel movement every morning. Yes. So if I don't, which is very rare, then that I would consider that, that to that be constipation. constipation. Even in a 24-hour period and having another bowel movement the next day, I was constipated that day is what I would think. Correct. Some people may not use that. They would say, oh, well, I haven't had a bowel movement for three days. That's normal for me. I'm not constipated. Uh, and if we go to these developing countries, what do we see? A bowel movement every day. More than that. They eat, they poop. That's what happens. Whoa. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah, so they're having a bowel movement perhaps three times a day. Hashtag bowel (laughs) goals. Wow. There's a... See, I always thought of that as an overactive bowel. If you have more than one, unless unless it's Thanksgiving. think (laughs) Think about it, too, that in developing countries, well, put it this way. I mean, generally, it's you eat and you poop. And how that works is when your stomach expands... It, it causes a reflex, the stomach anal reflex. I don't, I can't even remember, uh, I can't remember the name of that. Mm-hmm. 
But what happens is your stomach expands and it sends a signal to your anus and it releases your anus. Right? And in your anus, you've got two sphincters, right? There's two valves. Right. One's under voluntary control and one's under involuntary control. Mm-hmm. Right? The one that's on the outside is voluntary. voluntary. And you get to choose that. Right. But the involuntary, you don't have choice on. That's when that releases, that gives you the urge to have a bowel movement. Right. So when there's food in your stomach, that sends a signal to release that internal, the internal sphincter the involuntary sphincter so then now you have a you know uh, a reflex mm-hmm. that says i need to have a bowel movement but let's say there's not much there or there's still not something remaining and then you may not need to have a bowel movement right but let's just say you're eating a tremendous amount of fiber and think about this in third world developing countries they're they're fighting for calories yes and they're eating foods that aren't really caloric dense and they have to cook them because mm-hmm. they're not getting them in flour form right they get grain and they got to cook the grain and it's going to take them two to three hours to make the porridge or whatever it is right. and i'm generalizing here but for the most part they'd say well you'd say oh well they have a high carbohydrate diet yeah they have a high carbohydrate diet but they have so much fiber in there mm-hmm. and the fiber becomes something that they're not getting nutrients from and then it's going somewhere right? it's in your digestive tract or what are you going to do it just creates more bulk in the stool it'll it'll move it'll have an effect on the peristaltic wave right it does all those things yeah so it's it forces that and it's not that they're doing it by choice they're not saying oh i'm eating a high fiber diet they're like <laughs> ah boy if you this gave me fat available. and gave me something concentrated i'd totally eat that right right Right, but you give them sugar, they'll eat sugar. But for the most part, they're living off the land and and with limited resources, right? And Correct. So they're not, you know, maybe it's just excess. You know, we just have excess calories. So we have this whole nutrition concept that we're trying to cut our calories. Right. Whereas if you're in a developing country, you'd be like, I'm not getting enough calories. I'm fighting to get the calories. Now, of course, there's going to be wealthy people there that don't have an issue. With yeah, that, it's all right? on this huge spectrum. Correct. Right? It's on the spectrum. You're, you're talking in. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But basic ideas. But so this is the the idea that wow, you mean every time I eat, I should have a bowel movement? So is that constipation that you eat and you don't have a bowel movement? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll agree with you and say I want a bowel movement every day. Mm-hmm. If there's not a bowel movement every day, I'm going to label that constipation. Right. I'm right. not sure. I don't even know what the ICD code is for constipation. What's Probably ICD? says in there. Uh, that's the way we make diagnoses. Oh, okay. Actually, it's not ICD. ICD is for um, uh, mental, emotional stuff. So I don't even know the, the, the definition of constipation. It's all over the board. But regardless, we want that moving. Right. And I've seen lots of patients that take lots of fiber and, and they're still and not still having a bowel movement. movement. You're like, oh, well, and then what's the answer? I don't know. It's like if your vitamin D levels are low and you take vitamin D and it's still low, what do you do? Take more vitamin D. If you're constipated and you're taking fiber, it's like, we'll take more fiber. Uh-huh. Increase your fiber intake. Does that work? Maybe. And again, does a fiber difference if you're eating beans and legumes or if you're eating fiber, you know, Fibercon or Metamucil or something like that? I mean, fiber is fiber, but I would say I like it really inherent in the food that you're eating because right. then I'm mimicking sort of what we saw in developing countries and just sort of what we that's our natural perspective right we didn't have flour before mm-hmm. we had stone ground wheat yeah right, right? And stone a big corn difference in that effect that that has on your digestive tract even though we'd say oh well whole wheat fiber a whole wheat flour has a lot of fiber in it true but it's obliterated mm-hmm. right it's powder i mean you could eat wonder bread that's brown and that's like whole wheat fi- whole wheat whole wheat wonder bread and, and again, whole wheat flour does have magnesium. It's got the B vitamins. It's got the fiber in it, but it's been completely processed. Well, it's obliterated, right? It's, it's powder. Right. And, and those things have been added back. I don't. I mean, are those naturally no, no, occurring? They're, they're naturally occurring when you when you when you grind the flour on that. They're not adding the magnesium and B vitamins. Been fiber back. They're just obliterating it. They're just finely you know milling it. Yeah. So they can turn it into bisquick, and you can turn it into cake mix and cereal and all these things. I think we've talked about that, right? That's a food industrialization. That's the Mill City Museum in the Twin Cities. Right. I think I've talked about. Mm-hmm. Like, go visit that. That's the beginning of the end, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And they glorify the Pillsbury Doughboy and. <laughs> Betty Crocker, and I'm like, whoa, this is bad. This is food industrialization that happened in the 1870s. Right, but of course it's marketing. Of course it's marketing, right, and marketing success. Yeah, for sure. I'm not going to deny that, but I mean health success? No, 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 no. 
mm-hmm. going in the wrong direction. Anyway, so that we've got that movement in the digestive system. But here, here's the thing that I think about is to say, well, okay, I want you to eat fiber. I want you to eat beans. I want you to get you know, fiber in your food and you're going to get fiber in your food. You're going to have to cook it anyways. And you're going to have to spend time in your kitchen. Thumbs up, right? You do that. It's, it's always going to work better. But let's say maybe there's just a lack of peristaltic movement in your body. Maybe that migratory motor complex is only running nine times a day instead of 12 times a day. And this is a thought experiment. I don't know how to measure that. I, well, I suppose there's probably some way we can measure it, but but let's say that that's not engaging. Let's say that that's not happening. This is underlying movement is not there, of which fiber will help that. But just understand that you eat a meal, that's a bigger trigger on that. And mm-hmm. you eat a meal, it doesn't matter if it's fat, protein, carbohydrates, fiber or not. It's just that there's food in your stomach that then you're sending a signal. It's just like, well, I got calories or I have food here. We need to, we need to move things. Yeah. And perhaps maybe eating more fiber has more of a stronger effect on that. But again, I've seen lots of people that they're still constipated. It's like, well, more fiber. Well, maybe we need to engage your upper digestive tract. I mean, I think I've talked about this before, mm-hmm. right? This is the, the you know, using bitters, using things to engage your hydrochloric acid, to engage the bile system, right? To engage these things that play a really important role in initiating the movement in the GI tract. So instead of a kind of a bottom-up piece, that's kind of how I think about fiber, right? Fiber's working in the colon, and it's working to create bulk in the stool, so it's further down where it's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not completely true, but, but for the most part, that's true, right? From the bottom up versus the it's top down, compared to meaning, the drops that you're talking about. Or yeah, or using bitters, yeah. or doing something to say, hey, I need to engage my digestive system, and oftentimes by engaging my digestive system and eating fiber, I find more success with constipation. Hmm, okay. And again, constipation, I mean, is a huge deal, right? So this is just this lack of movement in the digestive tract. And again, we want to talk about stagnation. That's just like, wow, I've got, uh, you know, I have stool sitting in my digestive tract, in my colon that hasn't moved for a while, right? And I mean, it's all sorts of yeah. permutations and a theme on that to try to say we need to engage that system. We want that movement. Mm-hmm. And we want, I mean, that's just telling us we're able to eliminate things, right? We're able to eliminate toxins. We're able to eliminate, you know. Uh, just the excess. Just I mean, the excess. You don't need the it. fiber, right? The fiber that we don't need. It's mm-hmm. just playing a role going right through. But honestly, the fiber in our, the bacteria, our microbiome, can convert that fiber into short chain fatty acids, which we can actually use for nutrients. Mm-hmm. We feed the digestive tract with short-chain fatty acids, and they're a byproduct of fiber. So as much as we think that fiber's not digested, it's not digested by human enzymes, but the bacteria can feed on that, right? This is a whole FODMAPS thing, right? Fermentable carbohydrates hmm. or prebiotics. You've heard of prebiotics. Yes. So prebiotics aren't bacteria. They're just food for the bacteria. Oh, okay. Right? And you get that from fiber, right? I mean, you get that from soluble fiber. Right? Mm-hmm. Those are all things that... Um, play a role in that but but regardless so constipation i i mean i put constipation and gallbladder disease at kind of the top of my list of things that i'm looking at functional disturbances with patients and people because i'm just constipated you know I'm, okay well we really need to address that like that's like a really important thing oh well what about my fibromyalgia and my rheumatoid arthritis and yeah but if there's lack of movement in that digestive tract that's like the underneath all these other diseases and symptoms that you have. Yeah, right? I, so think, we want to I think that. constipation has become very normalized. Yeah, correct. And part of it is because there are literally medications and you know fiber drinks and pills that you can take, and so it's just it's like um, indigestion or you know it's, it's just a commodity. It's yeah. a commodity. Here you go, take this. Right. right. You have heartburn, you can take a proton pump inhibitor. You have constipation, you can take fiber. Yeah. Uh, not that that's wrong, but you're not engaging the system. You're not looking at the underlying issues that are playing a role in this. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's really engaging that upper GI, which leads me to the what I think is perhaps the most important circulatory system. Well, there's the lymph flow too, right? So there's the lymph system. That's when we um, digest fat. Fat doesn't travel in the same way as the carbohydrates and the proteins, so fat is transported in the lymphatic system. So that's another circulatory system, but that's kind of going along with the bloodstream, right? It's different and it's important. 
But the really important one is enterohepatic circulation. Okay, God bless you. We talked about that. (laughs) (laughs) Entera what? Enterohepatic circulation. Hepatic, okay. So hepatic, do you know what hepatic is? No. Liver. Sounds like hyper. Oh, okay, liver. So movement within that liver system, Mm. right, the liver. And this is uh, what I find to be epidemic. Uh, I wear rose-colored glasses. I'm, like, looking for this in everybody, so uh, I, don't, I find it. I don't think it. that's the definition of rose-colored glasses. Oh, yeah, okay, well. <laughs> Maybe but jaundice-colored see, glasses. Yeah, jaundice-colored glasses, right? <laughs> All I see is jaundice, yes. Uh, <laughs> but though I do have seen jaundice, it's been missed. It's been sort of... I was born jaundiced. Yeah. So was my daughter, interestingly. Again, that's a liver, that's a liver oh, yeah, issue. Believe me, right? I know. And the liver, very <laughs> underappreciated organ. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that with detoxification, how it plays a role in that. And I think we've talked about this idea that I have this toxic bile, right? This, yes. this bile production. But anyway, so this enterobatic circulation is another circulatory system. It's not blood. It's not oxygen. It's not food. It's bile. Mm-hmm. Right, so bile is the byproduct of detoxification. And okay. bile is a, um, uh, you know, it's a, uh, what do we call it? It's water-soluble and fat-soluble. So it has, it, it, it has a water-soluble component to it and a fat-soluble component to it. It's like making mayonnaise that we talked about. Oh, yeah. So making mayonnaise, you got to be able to emulsify the fat with the with the fluid, right, or with the with the water, right? Mm-hmm. They don't mix together, or the fluid, right? So this is this is an emulsification. You know, water and oil don't mix. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem when we eat fat. Yes. So when we eat fat, we have to break that fat down. And think about it. That's like in your in your kitchen sink. What do you use to emulsify the fats? To uh, break down the fats, emulsify. So we're, we're, we got a big glob of fat, and we want to make it a smaller glob of fat because a smaller glob of fat is going to be better to, able to be dealt with than a big glob of fat. I don't know. I'm having a hard time even picturing this. Dish soap. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. so dish soap, what does hot it do? Water. It sort of breaks that yeah. fat down. yeah. I mean, you can use really hot water too, and hot water will sort of melt the fat. You can do that, right? But the but it's not changing the chemical. That'll just once that temperature rises, you'll solidify it again. Mm-hmm. Whereas soap actually saponifies, right? So saponification is the word we use for that. But emulsifies, right? What it does is it kind of invades that big fat molecule and it breaks, breaks it, it apart up. into yeah. smaller molecules. Then you can rinse it off your plate. Mm-hmm. So the same thing has happened in your digestive tract. Yes, when you eat fat, you have to break it down. Okay. And breaking it down requires soap or an emulsifying agent. This is completely different than protein digestion. Protein digestion is about hydrochloric acid and having really strong enzymes to break things down, to break that protein bonds down. Fat, totally different issue. We just have to make those big molecules smaller. Okay, so we're going to... Hold off on this mystery for a moment to thank you for tuning in to listener-supported WDRT 91.9 Community Radio. You're listening to The Skeptical Naturopath with Paul Rattay and Christina DeRocher. Okay, so what is the proverbial dawn in our bodies that breaks up this fat? It's bile. Okay. So bile is a garbage from your liver. Your liver makes it as an end product of detoxification and breaking down hormones or chemicals and understand there's a lot of hormones endogenous hormones that means they come from inside your body rather than outside your body i mean we get all worked up about exogenous toxins and for sure i mean i want to limit exogenous toxins but we make hormones every day in our body that have to be detoxified estrogen Mm -hmm. right estrogen is a carcinogen but we won't reproduce as a species if we don't have estrogen so we got to play this balancing act, right? Well, we need estrogen, but we don't want too much estrogen, and we better be able to deal with the estrogen that we're making. Testosterone, same thing. Cortisol, right? All these steroid hormones, yeah. they have to be broken down. Okay. That's just one example. We break down other things too, right? It's, it's not just that. So the liver is going to get, you know, it plays a major role in determining that, right? And, and that's the location 
where a lot of this happens. I mean, if you study liver physiology, it actually, actually has three different blood flows to it. It's pretty, really cool. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I learned histology. Maybe I said histology where you look in a microscope and you look at cell types and things. That was like the first class that I took in school mm-hmm. or first term of medical school. I took histology. And interesting enough, I'm like, this should be the last class that we take. Because once I understand the physiology and I can kind of see how the body works, then to go and look in a microscope is fascinating. But to look at a microscope to be able to, to start to understand it by looking at it in depth, I don't think that's the way to go. So mm. I flip that around. I, you know, the histology professor where I teach it in, in the Twin Cities, I, I've told her that, right? I said, oh, my gosh, Jane your class is the most important class, but it's at the wrong time. She was all happy about it. Once I told her that, I was like, like <laughs> friends forever, right? Yeah. BFF, once I say how important From the whole is. to the parts. From the whole to the parts. You got to understand the whole, and then you look at the parts, and you're like, oh, that's really fascinating. Oh, that makes sense, instead of trying to explain everything from the microscopic. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I, I think that that's a, a sort of a better way to look at that. But but anyways, the liver really fascinating if you look at the histology of that, which I've just actually relooked at recently, and I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot all this and the, the structure that it has and where the ducts and they're like it's like a triangle structure and the way the blood flows through that and and then we produce bile. But anyways, so there all this circulatory system through the liver. The liver at any given time holds like. I don't know, a gallon of blood? It's, it's a tremendous amount of blood. I, don't quote me on this, but it's a wow. lot of blood that we find in the liver at any given time, right? Because it's got different systems that kind of intersect there. Because okay. the liver is, you know, point of contact. That, right. That's where it's happening. And there's a bunch of capillaries too, yeah, right? Yeah, like there's a lot long, of capillaries. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's, and it kind of drains through that, right? The, mm-hmm. the caniculi, they call it. Okay. And I'm forgetting all my specific <laughs> physiology here, but the caniculi, that's a cool. That I like is a fun word, word yeah. Um, kind of like, like autophagy and apoptosis. Right? <laughs> you, you use whatever chance I get to say those just because I like the way it sounds. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, so the bile is made in the liver, and the bile is like the byproduct of detoxification, and it drip, drip, drip out of the liver. And it drips and it goes in the bile duct and uh, the hepatic duct. And it goes to the gallbladder. And the gallbladder sits right next to the liver. And it basically flows into the gallbladder. And the gallbladder collects that bile that's been dripping out of the liver and stores it and concentrates it. And so you got this nice little sac that's nestled right next to your liver. And that's what is then stimulated when you eat fat. Mm. So when you eat fat... There's a signal sent from your gall, from your digest, from your stomach to your gallbladder, right? I said that, that we had to have the other one that was the stomach to the anus. Now we've got the stomach to the gallbladder, gallbladder and it says, "Hey, fat's coming," and help, it's actually fat now, down. fat in the digestive tract. Right. So if you don't eat fat, we won't have that signal as much. Right. Hmm. So that's a that's a fat signal. It's cholecystokinin is the hormone that's released on that, and it says to the gallbladder, "Hey, fat's coming. We need some help." And the gallbladder says, "Oh, okay, contract." It contracts and it squirts the bile out. Mm -hmm. And it squirts bile out that then mixes with the fat in the small intestine. So it doesn't mix in the stomach. It mixes in the small intestine. So there's kind of a delayed response here. But the stomach, right, the stomach really doesn't break down fat, but it starts to shear it, right? There's a mixing. There's a whatever you can get from just the, the, the shear force on that, you may have some effect to kind of start to break down the fat. But it's not going to emulsify it real well. So that's then... That's what really happens in that upper small intestine because the bile mixes with the fat and acts like soap. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And breaks it down. And breaks it down. You're like, oh, wow, that makes sense. So then that happens, and what happens to that bile is it travels through your digestive tract, and funny enough, about 95% of that bile is reabsorbed back into the body in the colon. Wait a minute. This is like toxic residue. And we're reabsorbing it to go back up to the liver, right? So that's the circulatory system, right? Starts in the liver, gallbladder, small intestine, large intestine, back up to the liver. So we recycle it. And we're recycling, let's call it garbage. Why are we recycling garbage? 
I well, understand that I'm not sure it's garbage because it's really important to break down right. fat, right? Let's so, just but, call it soap. <laughs> yeah, let's call it soap. Let's call it kind of garbagey soap. Used right. soap. It's dirty We're, soap. It's yeah. dirty soap. Well, the, like kind, the kind that you pull the plug at the end of your yes. dishes and go, thank goodness, yes, that's gone. Yes, it's gone. 100% right. of that's gone. And then you gone. rinse the sink. You Instead know. of putting it back into that bottle and using it. Oh, there's part, a YouTube part video of why, for Part of why I can't imagine why that makes sense is because you're producing and breaking down hormones every day. So how, why do you even need to recycle it? Although I'm now remembering what you've said before, that the body is going to take the least, um, uh, what's like water takes the least resistance path. And so perhaps the body says, look, it, may, it takes a lot of effort to make this bile. We're not going to waste it. And that's why it's recycled. Bingo. It takes a lot of energy to make bile and we make it. And the thing is we don't just release it when the, when you eat fat, we need more of it. We stimulate that system when we eat fat. But again, this whole motor migratory motor complex peristalsis, the gall, the bile plays a role in that. It helps stimulate that. It actually challenges that a bit. So that's part of that process is that we need that circulation, right? It's not just, oh, it's garbage, we need to eliminate it. I mean, we don't want that back into the bloodstream, mm -hmm. but it's not in the bloodstream. It's a separate circulatory system. It doesn't have access to the blood. Yeah. I mean, there's enzymes in your GI tract that can potentially unconjugate. I mean, it can change some of the chemical features there and have it become somewhat toxic. But for, the most part, but for the most part, if it's working well, if it's working well, you're just recycling and it's just recycling in that system that, so that you use it, that, that ball, that bile flow works just right with the migratory motor complex. That's working like 12 to 16 times a day that you're circulating that. Even if you don't eat fat, hmm. if you eat fat, it's just stronger. So there's already movement to say, let's move it. Now I, we don't reabsorb a hundred percent of it. We reabsorb about 95%. Okay. So, so about five percent leaves a in loss the store. Going on. So there's a little loss, but mm -hmm. let's just say you're just losing what you're going to gain from the liver the next time around. If we think about it that way, right? right? So it's kind of like protein too. We can look at protein. You need to replace the protein that you're losing. Yes. Right. That's how much protein we need, really. Yeah. And if you're building muscle mass, you need more protein because you're you're losing more, right? But but anyways. Not, yeah. But if you're not, then. So uh, again, really important movement structure here. And that, uh, again, understand that binding some of that bile and carrying it out in the stool. So if we were to have 5% that we lose in the stool and we raise that to 10%, boy, now you're increasing the elimination of that, but you're putting more burden on your body perhaps to get your liver to make more. And that may actually be a good thing. Right, so to, to go from ninety-five to ninety percent, right, or or to say, can I do something in the digestive tract to get you to excrete more bile in the stool rather than again? So instead of recycling ninety-five, you recycle ninety. And how do you do that? Uh, so what would you do in your digestive tract now to try to bind that bile and carry it out? Oh, We've is, already is talked that about fiber? This. Yeah, there you go. Right, soluble fiber plays a role in that. Insoluble fiber, not so good. Soluble fiber. Huh, okay. So soluble fiber will play a role to bind some of that bile and carry more out in your GI tract. Hmm. Okay. You can do other things too. You can use bentonite clay. You can use charcoal, right? Activated charcoal or just charcoal in general. Right? That, we talked about that earlier, charcoal that people are like all geeked into, out about charcoal. Yeah, and they're like, yeah. I put charcoal in my detox smoothie. I'm like, uh, charcoal is something to be done away from meals. Because it adsorbs, it's not absorb, it's adsorb, it's a different kind of process. Mm. But it forms like a film on it. But it will prevent things from being absorbed. So you take charcoal and you eat you know, a meal with calcium and magnesium in it, that charcoal will prevent the absorption of the magnesium and the calcium. You take it with a drug or even a supplement, depending on the supplement, it may prevent the absorption of that. So charcoal isn't some magic thing. I mean, it's really good if you've got diarrhea. It's really good if we want to bind things and carry it on in the stool, but it's going to bind good guys as well as bad guys. Okay. So just beware. Yeah. Like, do it away from meals, and, you know, I don't know that more is better on this. Right. But, but anyways, that's an example of something that can help bind some of that bile hmm. okay. and carry it out. So those are, those are strategies that are just binding, yes? But understand that that's not necessarily playing a role in the 
upper GI system, right? That's like downstream kind of manipulation instead of going in there and saying, oh, well, maybe I need to help the body make more bile. Or maybe I need to make sure that route of elimination, that movement of the bile from the liver to the gallbladder to the stomach to to small intestine is moving. Because I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of stagnation going on there where that's not moving very well. And these are people that have gallbladder, they may have gallbladder disease. Mm -hmm. And they get their gallbladder removed. And we can live without our gallbladder. Absolutely. If we couldn't live, we wouldn't be taking it out. And honestly, that people feel better when they get their gallbladder taken out, generally. A few people feel worse, but for the most part, people that have problems and they get their gallbladder removed, it's like a, it's like a lifesaver for them. But what would their problem be, do you think? Uh, storage of that bile now. Yeah, but what do you think their symptoms are? And what do you think triggers that in somebody that's got gallbladder disease? Or gallbladder disease, or let's call it stagnant bile. Yeah, right. right? Or, or the Chinese would talk about liver chi stagnation. Yeah, so this is just that the liver energy isn't moving very well. Oh, my gosh, that's it, right? I love that. I mean, I could say, oh, lots of people have liver chi stagnation, so I'm using Chinese medicine sort of energetic terms to explain That's unfortunately kind of my jam, and so I would say symptoms that I often get are headaches, nausea, fever, and vomiting. What do you think would trigger that? Uh, Just out of the blue or? No, I mean, I think it's, well, I don't know what, what I'm dealing with right now, but but if the bile is not moving yes it's sluggish it's thick then you have fat that isn't being soaked correct so you've got so then what would trigger that what what's going to amplify that symptom the symptom of having too much fat when that's the, well that's the cause if you're eating fat and your gallbladder and liver gallbladder is not moving very well. You're stimulating that system. So your stomach is telling your gallbladder, hey, we need some bile. And the gallbladder's like, oh, I can't do it. It's just like it's thick. And I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. And it's contracting. And nothing's happening because it's not smooth. It's thick. It's what, you know, whatever we want to call that. Yeah, right. So then it's the fat is the trigger that's going to make your symptoms worse. Right. So people that have gallbladder disease, they'd be like, I'm not eating fat. If I eat fat, I go out and I eat French fries, oh my God, I'm sick for, you know, oh, 10 hours. Yeah. Because they're triggering that system and they're having a lot of symptoms from that. Yeah. So they say, oh, well, the answer is don't eat fat. Right. Well, I'm not right. sure that's the answer. That's the way to manage the symptom. But the whole idea is that system is stagnant. It's not moving. We got to work on that system so that when you eat fat, it's not a problem. Right, right. That's the goal, not that you don't eat fat. I mean, you can decrease your fat, but fat's not necessarily the bad guy. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure it's the good guy or the bad guy. Let's just be agnostic here and not label it one way or the other. But you get fat-soluble vitamins and, you know, essential fatty acids and things that you need from that. But the whole idea is that then we avoid that. We don't eat fat. And understand that I put people on low-carbohydrate diets, and if I put somebody with gallbladder disease on a low-carbohydrate diet, what happens? Hmm. They want to strangle me. Because it's not... Because, because now what is a low-carbohydrate diet? A low-carbohydrate diet because I take fat. the... It's It's not low-fat. A low-carbohydrate diet? Oh, no, 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 no. A low-carbohydrate diet is... If I tell you you can't eat any carbohydrates, what do you end up eating? Oh, protein and fat. You eat a lot of fat. Yeah, your right, fat to make it, up for it. Exactly, right? So now you're eating a bunch of fat. Right. And you got a liver gallbladder stagnation issue? What's going to happen? Ouch. You're going to want to strangle me. Yeah, yeah. Now I know that, yes, and I assess for that. And you don't have to twist my arm to say, hey, let's support the liver. I mean, I'm going to support the liver in every single person that I see. Right. I'm going to have some conversation like, what can you do to love your liver? And yeah, I can give you herbs and all sorts of things. And But I, I would say, for all intents and purposes, if you're pushing me against the wall, I'd rather have you on liver support than a fatty acid, than essential fatty acid, than having calcium magnesium, than having a multivitamin. I would say take some liver support because mm-hmm. that's the organ that is completely overburdened by the society. And we don't do anything to like care for, to love our liver. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of th- a lot of things you can do, but we're constantly challenging it, right? With our lifestyle, with the way that we eat, with the stress we're under, all those things will burden this liver. this this enterohepatic circulation. So you can look that up and understand. Here's the process, but I'm all interested in what are the things that we do that influence that, and we want that moving. 
Yes. And yeah. doing things to help that is it can be very important for people. And and this we get into herbs on this, right? So we start talking about what the class of herbs we call choleretics and cholagogs. So okay. choleretics and cholagogs are increasing bile production and then increasing the move and then stimulating bile flow, right? So it does I mean, and many herbs that are cholagogs are also choleretics. They kind of mix. Mm-hmm. And generally the really bitter herbs Mm-hmm. Dandelions. Exactly. They have an effect on that stomach acid, right? So they engage that stomach acid, but they're also choleretics and cholagogues. So you're getting a lot of bang for your buck on that. It's interesting, too, because you don't find those flavors a lot in, you know, Western No, culinary. we stay away from them because they could be poisonous, yes? So yeah. we taste something bitter and we're like, ah. Right. Like that. my favorite book is, uh, what is it, Salt, Acid, Fat, Heat. Uh-huh. I think we've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Bitter's not on her list, right? I don't think she's adding bitter things to... If it's something's bitter, you're trying to figure out how do you like manage it a little better. How do you put a little bit of sweetness in there to cut the bitter? Right, right. But we do the bitter tasting in my house. I think I've told you that, mm-hmm. right, with the tinctures. And gentian, by far and away, is the most bitter substance known to man Oof. that I know of. Oh, yeah. It gives me a like, chill oh, just to think about it. The parotid glands like swell <laughs> up, and you can feel that. But again, it's engaging that hydrochloric acid, but it also plays a role on the liver function, mm-hmm. right? So it was so, so important. But dandelion, burdock, chicory. Um, chicory is actually a little bit tonifying, too. So chicory is a is not quite as cold as some of the other bitters. Mm. Beets are really beneficial. Artichoke. So the artichoke beets and our chicory are kind of milder. I mean, I, burdock would be a milder too, right? Burdock, you can cook with burdock oh, too. Yeah. Huh? You know that. Oh, yeah. It's gobi, right? Is it gobi? Gobi. Right? Yeah, that's yep. Japanese. I, I think that's Japanese. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyways, using those things, you're actually doing something to support your liver. And you eat them. Yes. Like put them in your food. Right. Put them, you know, make soups and stews and use burdock and use these There's things. There's a great, really light stir fry, carrot and burdock. Carrot, burdock, kinpira. Look it up. It is so good. And you can, you know, in macrobiotics, we would eat it and say it tonifies the blood. Exactly. Yeah. That's what it's doing. Mm-hmm. So it's tonifying and the blood is oftentimes we say that's liver. But, it, you know, the liver in Chinese medicine, they talk about yin and yang, not so much. And they talk about organs too, but I, I'm... A little over focused on the organ piece, right? Or mm-hmm. focused on the liver piece. But uh, thank you so much for tuning in to listener supported WDRT 91.9 Community Radio. I wanted to let you know that Paul Rattay will be having a lecture probably the second Saturday of January, probably January 13th. Please feel free to get onto the Commons website and check for sure because the date hasn't been exactly settled yet, but it will be on a Saturday morning. And the Commons is located on Jefferson Street here in Viroqua. The topic will be infection, build immune function to fight infection, 8.30 to 9.30 in the morning, and bring your questions. Thanks, Christina. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so how do you want to continue on this road, road <laughs> so, to... So it's this idea, you know, I call it toxic bile. Mm-hmm. And this is a kind of a, a, a interesting, what would I say? I, I always learn more from people that I disagree with. I think yes. I've said this before. So I, you know, I, I've had, maybe I've mentioned this. I don't know. I, I, I apologize for repeating myself. But I've had patients that came, saw me in the Twin Cities and they come to see me and they say, Hey, I went on the bean diet. There's this lady in in Eau Claire who gives the she gives the bean diet to everybody. Her name's Karen Hurd, um, and um, is she a nutritionist? I, I don't know, but she puts people on the bean diet. Hey, you can find she's got a book and she's got I, she's got a bunch of stuff on this. But so basically, you're eating six cups of beans a day, and you're eating a low fat diet. So it's funny that I'm, they, they've told me, I have like three or four different patients said, hey, I followed this diet and I can eat gluten. Oh. I'm like, what? Wow. I, I, really? I don't know, right? So this is just the idea like, oh, perhaps we need to like, maybe I need to investigate this. I can't just say you're wrong, but they're on a low fat, high bean diet. I mean, there is fat in beans, right? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, not much. Not much. Okay. But but deliberately, she and she and so I got the book, right? I got her book to read it because I'm like, oh, what's she talking about? And honestly, I probably read like five pages of the book where it's the nuts and bolts of what I need to do. Yes. And she calls it toxic bile. 
I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it, right? This is for sure what's happening. But yet my treatment is generally different. Yeah. So instead of me putting people on a low-fat, high-bean diet, generally I put them on a low-carb diet, high-fat diet, or higher-fat diet, but I give them support to move the liver and the gallbladder. So I'm taxing it where she's trying to rest it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, but I, honestly, I, I looked at it, I reflect on that. I'm like, oh, well, there's probably a balance in between here, mm-hmm, yes? Mm-hmm. So the body and the, 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 her piece is that the, that the beans are giving you soluble fiber, which, again, you could accomplish that through a supplement, right? And you, you can do that. I mean, soluble fiber, just doing plain soluble fiber, I'd rather have it in a food con, you know, food context. For sure, for sure. But six cups of beans, a lot of beans. That's a, That sounds really I bad. I think it's six. Maybe it's three cups. <laughs> ah, is it six or three? Ah, I can't is even remember. Is that all you're there eating? You no, no, no. Okay. But, but it's low fat. Yeah, right. Low fat, high bean diet. Seems like three cups would be more reasonable if you're eating. Other yeah, but things. I don't know that this is reasonable. There you go. I can't remember. There you go. Uh, but anyway, so that I'm I'm interested in them. It's like, whoa, okay. Well, perhaps there's a balance here, right? And there's a balance be- between yes, I want more soluble fiber in the diet and getting it by really pushing that by eating a lot of beans. But then perhaps we also want to do things that are choleretics and cholagogs that we want to work on improving that bile flow. We don't want to just avoid it. Right, right. Or completely rest it because there's something Or completely to be rest it, but perhaps we for. need to rest it in the short run. And again, I've been doing this long enough that I give choleretics and cholagogs to patients that I make patients worse. And I know that. But I don't know that they're worse until I give that to them, mm-hmm. right? So I got to start somewhere, mm-hmm. and I kind of have a range of things that I can use, and I usually kind of go middle of the road. And middle of the road means I use something that's not really weak, but not really strong, and I kind of see what happens. But there's a method to my madness, right? And Chinese medicine people would tell me, "Hey, why don't you know whether they're deficient or excess? And if you knew that, then you know not to push them." I'm like, yeah, but I don't, my, my diagnosis is, or my, I'm a, you know, impatient empiricist that I'm going to give you something. I'm going to say, how do you respond to that? Hmm. That I'm more like, let's do an experiment and see what happens and work with that. But anyways, I've used a whole variety of different herbs and I constantly, I mean, I don't know, I might probably have like six or seven things that I use on a regular basis. But, you know, some people can't tolerate it all. And some people are really, really toxic bile, if you want to call it that, that I'm giving them it, giving them herbs in, in liquid form, and they can only do drop dosing of it because I can't give them more than that because I make them sick. Hmm. So I'm pushing too hard. But I don't want to not push them, but I want to just kind of try to keep engaging it and doing other things as well because I, I don't think the long-term answer is to don't eat fat mm-hmm. but perhaps they need to eat less fat and eat more beans and we need to work on this but to try to get them back to a level that that system is moving well yeah well, so in other words i think there's like right you know six different ways to skin a cat here right how do you want to approach this and again just understanding that perhaps the fiber is more important in some people whereas the choleretics and cholagogs are more important in other people mm-hmm and then part of that's the tonification part, right? So tonification means that I'm trying to build up, build up, and not even just building the bile, but building or tonifying the liver. It's funny, I had a patient recently that um, certain similar uh, the situation is I give her gallbladder support and it makes her worse, right? So she's down to liquid and she was taking like an eighth of a teaspoon and then she tried to increase it and she couldn't and then we're back to an eighth of a teaspoon and then she can't tolerate the eighth of the teaspoon. So it's like this ongoing, like I can't hardly take anything. I'm like, okay, well, we've got to start working on this. And I said, well, we need to tonify your liver. She's like, what does that mean? So she looks it up. I mean, she's a she's a chemist, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then she's like, I can't find anything. I, I asked my medical doctor about it, and they say nothing, right? They're like, that doesn't exist, right? But I'm like, okay, I, I don't know that I have a definition of it, and I can't tell you the exact physiology to that. It's just that there's this idea that, first of all, you can't tolerate these herbs, which means I'm pushing you too hard. I'm, I'm pushing on a system that isn't there to be pushed, Perhaps we need to build it up a little bit so there's something to push, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of this tonification thing, right? And that's artichoke and chicory. Beets are really beneficial for that, right? So they, they're more food-based that mm-hmm. you can use mm-hmm. to try to help with tonification. There's a Chinese herb, Romania. I think it's Huangqin. I don't know the opinion on it. But Romania is a tonifying herb that they use to build the blood. It's a blood tonic. 
in okay. Chinese medicine. That R can be E H M A N N I A. Yes, right? yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's prepared. It's a root, and then the Chinese do something. They cure it or something to make it more Potent. warm it up or something. I, 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 I don't know. But that's a that's another example of something that actually is building, right? Because there's a there's a point of sometimes we need to move things, but we also need to build things. Right. And in some people, maybe I need to build more than it is to move. And I get into trouble if I move. Mm-hmm. But I, there's nothing to move. Yeah, like there's nothing say. to move. It's kind of like the, a mud puddle, right? So if you got a mud puddle, how do we move the mud? If it's so thick, you're not going to move anything. You're going to be kicking it, and it's not really doing anything. You actually have to thin it out a little bit, and then you can move it. Right? Yeah. So this is kind of that balance piece. So that's the building and the moving that I talk about with the toxic bile. And then the binding piece. So that's kind of basically the the, th- the three strat- uh, strategies to approach that. Build, move, and bind build, move, and bind. And the binding is the least important of them, right? It's the, it's the trying to figure out what the balance is between building and moving. Mm-hmm. But again, that's the constipation piece that that's, we know that's not moving, so we just try to move it. But in fact, maybe I need to build it so we have something to move. Mm-hmm. But again, this is sort of more sort of, again, Chinese medicine sort of that we're looking at energetics, we're looking at time, we're looking at you know, not just, oh, we do this and it does this. It's like, yeah, but maybe I do this with a meal. It's more beneficial versus if I do it away from a meal. Right? I mean, there's all sorts of permutations on that. Mm-hmm. But I'm a beet fan, too, if we want to talk about beets. I think I've talked about kvass. Have you had kvass? Oh, that's, the fermented, that's a fermented beet. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, actually. Oh, man, but now I love kvass. Now that you're telling me about it, my CSA boxes gave me a lot of root vegetables. I have a lot of beets right now. Oh, yeah, just <laughs> it's really easy. And, but I, I put a lemon in it, too, right? I, I, you just cut it into pieces, and I don't even peel it. Okay. And then you just need a starter in there, right? You need either some yogurt or a probiotic starter or yogurt starter. Huh, and okay. then you're just letting it ferment for three days. It'll kind of get a film on top but oh my gosh it like concentrates that and it's mm. like it's like you're drinking blood right not to be like in a, a, vampire, in a good way yeah yeah and it's got that really earthy like you know grow hair on your chest or <laughs> right. russian peasant kind of thing but i think beets really beneficial yeah though if there's a gout problem you know beets not so good for that so there's kind <laughs> of a balance point like or kidney very, very rare to have out. Oh, that's a whole nother story. Okay. Gout's actually kind of underdiagnosed, but that's uh, that's another story for another time. So um, I see bentonite clay. Yeah, yes, yeah, so bentonite clay is basically just like charcoal. Okay. So using activated charcoal, bentonite clay. Bentonite clay would be something that, again, you want to do it away from meals. Okay. Now that being said, if you're having a diet, if there's diarrhea, the charcoal and bentonite would be the first things I would use. And then I would use it multiple times during the day. But I'm not worried about absorbing anything when you're in acute diarrhea mode. Mm -hmm. You're not absorbing anything anyways. Anyways. Your body's in pitch mode. So let's just, you know, then it's a moot point. But if you're taking charcoal on a regular basis for something, it needs to be away from meals. Okay. Or bed night. And then I also see seed oils on your... Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So this is now getting to all the things that create the problems to begin with, right? Right. So is there a difference between eating a seed oil and eating, uh, you know, eating saturated fat or eating butter? I just think that what happens is that those seed oils are highly processed. And yeah, they may be different kinds of fatty acids, but we're just creating a whole burden on the body to be able to metabolize these and, and again, not that we don't have that issue from eating coconut oil or eating butter, that kind of thing. That's going to tax that as well. But those seed oils are, you know, brand new kinds of things. And we're concentrating the omega-6s in those. And they're a problem, right? It's, it, so now we're eating fats that have basically been oxidized. Mm-hmm. Or they've been, you know, they've been, been altered instead of eating natural fats. I think there's a difference there. I mean, in the big scheme of things, if you've got a gallbladder issue, it won't matter if it's butter or if it's seed oil. Mm -hmm. But the seed oils just, I think, are part of setting that system up for that, right? And refined carbohydrates as well. So refined carbohydrates, you know, specifically if we want to talk about sugar, right, or the fructose component to that, right? So fructose is going to be a burden on the liver. So now your liver is having to break down the fructose that you ate, and now it's not going to be a, doing as good a job producing bile, for example. Or the whole blood sugar issue, right? This is about trying to keep the blood sugar, blood glucose regulated. Because that's, again, 
the liver is a major organ that's playing a role in that. We often think, oh, that's a pancreas and that's insulin doing that. Um, yes, that's where it's secreted, but the liver is the one that's sort of sensing what's going on and sending out signals mm. to say, this is what we need to do, this is what we don't need to do, right? I mean, the immune system, we often think, oh, your immune system is upregulated, but actually the immune system has kind of surveillance surveillance system and it sends a signal back up to the liver and it says hey we got a problem here and the liver says oh okay i'll make a bunch of proteins that we need to 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 you know engage that immune system mm, mm. right so it's not just a localized thing it's something that's localized that becomes systemic but that liver is working behind the scenes all of the time yes an unsung hero. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, liver disease is really, really sort of not so much looked at in conventional medicine. Well, well okay, I, I guess I should state, I didn't put this on here, it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I was going to say, right? we all think about alcoholism as yeah, being Yeah, and it's a toxic big, to your liver. Yeah. But non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is people that have liver, uh, fatty liver and they're not drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. Well, where's that coming from? Right? And what is fatty liver? That's now you're infiltrating, you're... you're your liver's turning basically carbohydrates, glucose, into fat, and it's getting stored in the liver. That is not a good thing. Right. That's a bad thing. That's pathology or, you know, beginning of pathology. So we should not see fat infiltration in the liver. And the funny thing is it's not from you eating fat. It's from you eating carbohydrate. Because the carbohydrate is what the liver is turning into fat, and then it sticks in the liver. If mm. it's fat... The liver, liver basically, you know, digests that. It's not so much of an issue. It's not the fat. It's the carbohydrate. And specifically, it's fructose, right? It's fructose that's burdening the liver. So fruit. You know, well, it depends on the fruit, right? The sweeter the fruit, the higher the fructose, the more the burden it is on the liver. Right. Yeah, so sugar. It's the fructose component that's the, the, the damaging effect, right, or the burden on your liver, but remember here, we've talked about this before, that when you eat something with fructose in it, it's got a low glycemic index. Right. So it appears to be okay that it doesn't spike your blood glucose. So a diabetic would say, hey, I can do fructose. I can eat a honey crisp apple. It's got a low glycemic index. Yeah, it's got a low glycemic index because it's got a lot of fructose in it. It's sweet. Yeah. And the sweet, yeah, it doesn't spike your blood glucose oh, but it burdens my liver, and if it burdens my liver too much, now I may not be able to manage the glucose that I'm eating. Huh. Eh, this gets, you know, a little messy here. Yeah. But this is just like, where do we start? Mm -hmm. And that's where I don't necessarily... I mean, I think low glycemic is an important concept, but following it rigidly is, is not the right way to go here. It's really about saying, hey... and. And, and honestly, fructose isn't necessarily a bad guy. Fructose increases your glycogen stores, right? So when you have fructose, it triggers your liver to say, hey, I'm going to make glycogen. But if you get too much fructose and you, you've, you know, you've stored all your glycogen, now the liver's saying, oh, well, I got more fructose, now I'm going to turn it into fat. Right. right. So it's like, where do I cross that threshold? Yeah. And your threshold may be different than mine. Undoubtedly. Right? But yeah. non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in 18 to 24% of the population, including children, this is a big problem. Wow. And But they find it by mistake. They don't go looking for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yeah. They've done a liver, you know, they do a ultrasound. They say, oh, well, there's fatty infiltration in your liver. You've got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. People will be like, oh, what do I do? Well, lose weight and exercise more. Well, sure. I mean, that's good. But it's like, can't we be a little bit more direct? Aren't there other things that I could do to really help, you know, push this a little bit more? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things you can do from a, from a natural perspective, right, to support yeah. that. And I mean, looking at your lifestyle and doing things that actually help break down that fat in the liver and move that fat, right? This is, again, back to this toxic bile thing on some level. But fructose is the culprit. Well, alcohol too. But again, let's say non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there's no alcohol. Hmm. Alcohol is the quickest way to trash your liver. Right. Fructose is probably the, I mean, without like poisoning it per se, right? Doing things that are socially acceptable. Fructose <laughs> consumption would be next on the list. Huh. But it's a burden. I call alcohol poison and fructose, fructose a, burden. a burden. Yeah. And the burden becomes toxic at some level. Mm -hmm. right? It takes longer. It takes longer. It does, you know, it's a, it's a chronic toxin. Uh, who did, Robert, Robert Lustig talked about that, Sugar, the Bitter Truth, which is a viral video back a long time ago, 2007, 
but he was like demonizing sugar or demonizing fructose and talking about it. And I mean, he exaggerates things a little bit. We all sort of do when we're on our, you know, on our on our soapbox. But for the most part, he's talking about things that are really important. That this is the fructose thing, and it's a chronic toxin because we can tolerate it to a certain level. Right. So it infiltrates quietly, and then almost. it doesn't become a problem. And the the sugar industry and the sugar sweetened beverage industry, they're like, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 fine. Yeah, it's fine to a certain point. But where do we go? And how much sugar do we eat in fructose? I mean, this is something that's increased, though it's kind of stabilized now. We haven't increased our sugar so much, but we're still, you know, what we're in the numbers anywhere from 140 to 170 pounds a year. Jeez, that's amazing. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And when it was, you know, back in Civil War days, we were eating 20, 20 pounds of sugar a year. Mm-hmm. That's like times and, seven. But look at the grocery eight. stores. I mean, look at the, I know. Look well, at the aisles as you're checking out. I it's mean, dirt cheap, yeah. yeah. Sugar's cheap. Yeah. In 1860, sugar was not cheap. And we're busy. So we often take this quick route to having some energy to finish up our work day. And we want fireworks in our mouth, right? The fireworks. I mean, sugar absolutely gives us fireworks in the mouth. How do we get fireworks without sugar? Oh, you mean I got to use cumin and I got to use, you know, I got to use herbs. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Paul. I'm going to tell people one more time that you will be speaking at the Commons probably the second Saturday of January, probably January 30th or 13th, please check the Commons website. He'll be speaking on infection, build immune function to fight infection, 8.30 to 9.30 in the morning. Be sure to bring your questions of any kind.